Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of power here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever other good podcasts are sold, as well as YouTube with video. Hello, everybody. As you can see, I am joined by John Atak for this rapid-fire intro uh, to another fun installment of my weekly podcast. I have not had John on in far too long. We always, you know, sort of part ways, come back, you know, back and forth, back and forth, because our mutual experiences and um, views on things are just always kind of fun to, <laughs> to, to, to have our worlds collide from time to time and, and talk about it. So, uh, so, John, welcome back to my show. It's a pleasure and welcome to my show. And, and my introduction is so much... It's so pathetic in comparison to yours, which is, hi, I'm John Atak, <laughs> and that's all you're getting. <laughs> we, we first met in, in June 2015 in Toronto, um, the Getting Clear of Scientology seminar. Um, and um, I still think on my channel, there is uh, a couple of the things from there. There's my introductory talk. And there's also the piece that we did with Steve Hassan and Christian Sierko taking apart some of the technology of Scientology, the training routines and some of the auditing procedures. Mm. And I still think that's one of the most important things I've ever done to actually get people to just sit. Yeah, the history is all good fun. And Hubbard told all of these contradictory stories about himself. Um, I'm going on um, the Fair Game podcast again. to, And they, Mike Rinder came to me and said... Uh, we want to do something about Hubbard's lies. And I said, yeah, okay. And he, then he approached me and said, it's going to take at least two shows. And I said, it's going to take at least 10 shows. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent me a list of 20 you know, principal Hubbard lies. And it took me an hour to add another 80 to them. <laughs> I, I could ride before I could walk. That's one of my favourites. I was 10 months old and I was breaking Broncos. Yes, yes really, Ron, you know. Exactly. Those oh, were, oh man, he was he was the teller of tall tales. That is, there is no question about that. Mm. And it's uh, funny how often. I mean, you know, it, it must be, it must be with with these pathological types that that there must just be so much that they get away with as youngsters or something. I, I, I imagine. I mean, I imagine this must be the case, but. Uh, obviously, there's some kind of pathology there, but it's just so, so fascinating to see how the, the stuff he was saying from the youngest age. That, and then you go into, well, and then you've actually even read his own diaries and journals. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I made them public. And, and I, I thought that they were part of the um, materials that uh, Omar Garrison gave to Jerry Armstrong to protect himself because they came out of the Armstrong case. And it, it was it was just a strange event. I was over in California, uh, must have been I think it was eighty six, and you know the the first Armstrong case was fought in L A in uh, June eighty four, finished in June eighty four, and the transcripts are fascinating. <laughs> These very high up people on oath talking about their experiences, um, but I, I got this call, which was from. Um, indirectly from Michael Flynn, who was the, not the general who's involved with QAnon, but the Boston attorney. 
who basically had a great deal to do with cracking the you know Scientology organization apart and I was told that um, there was the seal on the court records was was open that there were three days during which any of the material that had gone into the case could be copied and would I like copies and so I thought about it for mm, a nanosecond <laughs> and and said yeah and there yeah. I was in LA and I was this great package of material was delivered oh, to oh. me and I presumed this had all been stuff that Jerry had put in and it was only in, when we were in Toronto and I talked with Jerry about the the three diaries of, of two of which are handwritten of Hubbard's trip to China where he of course studied with gurus um, the uh, only mention of course is um, he went to a lamasery and the monks voices sounded like bullfrogs and that's it Right. That's the whole wisdom of the East distilled into one Zen koan. The monks sounded like bullfrogs. Oh, I am enlightened, grasshopper. Um, but I, so I'm talking to Jerry at, at Toronto and he said, no, Scientology put those in to prove that he'd been to China. And you go, this phenomenal material the only trouble with china is there are too many chinks there they smell of all the bass they didn't take all of this stuff and so i was in fact when russell miller you know worked with miller used the original manuscript to blue sky it's listed as hubbard through the looking glass in his bibliography because that's what it was originally well it's one of the titles it had along the way and um russell the last you know he's trying to publish and he's taken to court in England to stop publication because you can, you know, only two books have ever been stopped from publication in the US. Uh, the first was Victor Marchetti's book on the CIA and the second was a piece of Blue Sky. <laughs> and we won at appeal, thankfully, but only two books have ever been stopped from publication. And mine was the one that wasn't about national security and wow. showed that Scientology did have some favours they could call in. Um, we overturned 17 rulings on, on that to, to get Good. and had the same lawyer, Mel Wolf, as Victor Marchetti, quite by chance, these, these years later. But when they tried to stop Russell, I got this phone call from his lawyer saying, you're the only person who can help us because every document they've challenged came from you. And that included the diaries, certain letters, all sorts of things. So... And that was when I was appointed, it was 87, I was appointed an expert witness. Right. And I believe, I could be wrong, and if anybody would like to correct me, I'm happy to be corrected. I believe I'm the only person in the world who's been named an expert witness on Scientology, specifically on Scientology. So, you know, if anybody needs an expert witness, you're too late. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, good times. Um, well, Plenty I had a thought recently and I and I reached out to you about it and I thought yeah. it because I thought you would understand more than anyone else and um and it really was I just kind of tossed it off because mm. I sat down here at this on this computer at this desk to this do, very desk this very spot to do a podcast at like we are doing right now about mm. and here's what I was going to do it on I was going to because you know I there's so much Scientology. And mm. after you break down the basics and sort of deconstruct it, you know, and have fun and, you know, have your fun and games with it, which I have done over the years. Mm. Um, 
there, you know, you kind of you kind of just sort of debunk it, and then you kind of go, okay, well, the whole thing's bunk, and 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 there you go, right? It's got little bits and pieces, but you know, the the fact of the matter is, every subject that humanity has ever created has bits and pieces that make sense. That doesn't mean the subject is is legit, right? And as Hubbard pointed out in the lecture, he criticised Muni Sadhu. He said somebody had come to him and said, he says this thing that you say. And in the lecture, as I remember it, Hubbard says something like, so we, we read the whole page and there were 35 other statements and they were all false. And you're going, how do you make 35 statements on one page? But that he himself puts this thing forward. And if you plagiarised everything, largely from Alistair Crowley, Yep. I wrote a paper called Possible Origins of Dianetics and Scientology. Jeff Jacobson wrote a wonderful paper showing where you could find aspects of Dianetics and Scientology. But I wanted to prove that Hubbard knew about those things. So mm. everything I refer to, I show that he was aware of it. And the weird thing is that he not only plagiarised people, he had to change something. I mean, the first time I got to this, soon after I got in Scientology, the marketing series started coming out. And the good folk at Birmingham knew I had no money, knew they were going to try and get me on staff, but they'd been stopped by the mission holder from hiring anybody. So they kept giving me stuff and saying, read the PR series, read the marketing. I got all this free stuff. And in the marketing series, it's got this stuff about recent trout, positioning the battle for your mind, the book is called. And Hubbard said, this is what positioning is. So I went and read recent trout's book and went, he hasn't understood it. And, and they were almost, and that policy letter even pulled visuals from the book. Yeah, and, and 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 which is very rare. Hubbard rarely quoted or cited anybody else, but when it came to PR and marketing, he well, thought yeah. he'd found some material that was absolutely master class stuff, and positioning was one of those things. Yeah, I mean the other thing is the Cut Lip and Center book on PR which was actually reprinted with red text, the whole yep. book of Hubbard's, which I imagine is a pretty rare book. I have a copy of it. Um, Les Dane's Big League Sales. He would often just grab somebody else's material. But what fascinated me, he elsewhere said, you should look for the original of something. You should look for where the thought originally came from. Yep. When I left Scientology, and I think this is relevant to your revelation, I sort of went, you know, I can't think about this from inside it. I have to step outside it. I have to reject it all. And so a few months after I left, you know, found myself at the centre of the independent movement in the UK. I'm going to go, and I don't believe in Hubbard, and I don't believe in anything he said. He was a liar. I know he was a liar. He contradicted himself. So he was a liar. Yep. And that means he's not trustworthy because liars are not trustworthy. Simple equation. And that means I don't trust any of it. I will readopt it piecemeal. I will look at it bit by bit. And whatever is relevant, I will take back. It's 37 years later. I've taken none of it back. There isn't anything in there that I want because everything I researched, I found the original source for. And the original source was better than Hubbard. And I think you're going to talk about isness, aren't you? Because that's highly highly relevant. Because to make something persist, you have to put a lie in it. And that my question since 1984 has been, what is the lie in Scientology that makes it persist? And it's very easy. That it works. (laughs) Bingo. Bingo. No OTs, no clears, no releases. Right. No super businesses. 
None of it. Exactly. I, you, you just you literally just nailed it. Yeah. Um, I, I have uh, I, I got to stop using that word literally. I've been watching the, the show. <laughs> there were no nails involved, honestly, children. Oh, <laughs> I I've been watching uh, uh, these the, this old show Parks and Recs, and one of the characters in there, the Rob Lowe character, is constantly. He's a lot like me in some ways, anyway. So it's been kind of fun watching that. It is literally the best show ever. So, I was literally glued to the TV. Yes. <laughs> um. Exactly. There's a we're we're throwing. It's funny because um, for people who don't know anything about Scientology, we're throwing stuff around, and they're probably like, "What are they talking about?" Um, TV, television set, glue, sticky substance. Yeah, exactly. Um, Hubbard, yeah, this epiphany, this this idea. I think you know, I, I I will just simply say my own journey has paralleled your own, and my own conclusions have paralleled yours. Yeah. Um, I have, I've, because I, what you just said is is articulating exactly how I have been uh, treating this subject for many years now. Is is just a full rejection of the entire thing. Oh, it was all bullshit, mm. and then. And then people start insisting to you, yeah, but what about this? And well, yeah. Didn't you have wins? Yeah, I had wins. What about this? What about this? You're just invalidating my gains. And you're like, okay, all right, hang on. It's not what I'm trying to do. Okay, let's back up here. There's a difference between the validity of a subject and your lived experience. Okay. Yeah, if you grew two heads, then you grew two heads. It's not for me to disagree. Exactly. I'm not trying to take away your wins. But or your other head. Yeah, exactly. Zaphod Beeblebrox, I think, is the proper term for that. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Um, you uh, hitchhikers fans out mm. there. Um, we, we just, by the way, just the other day, you'll, you'll laugh at this, we were, we were uh, perusing, browsing Netflix and found the 1980-81 Hitchhiker's Guide production. B BBC TV yeah. series. BBC. I mean, the, ra the original radio series is still, still the real the thing. Okay. But, okay. Um, absolutely brilliant. Eddie's in the space-time continuum. Better let him out. <laughs> um, if time uh, is an illusion, then lunchtime doubly so. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay. <laughs> so where I where I went with this, and where I contacted you about this, and thought that this would be good fodder for conversation is. Mm -hmm. Um, is exactly on this line of the of of the what what Scientology calls the conditions of existence, uh, what what Hubbard calls the conditions of existence, and this is this is different from those ethics formulas and conditions. This is a this is a much 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 more fundamental basic thing in Scientology. In fact, it is the it is the basis in yeah, some ways. That's oh. right. I was going to say. In fact, it's it is mm. the fundamental. There's there are really only a couple of key pieces of, of, of information that you could say form the, the, the bedrock of Scientology, Scientology's faith. And we need to call it faith. And, I, and for a long time, I, I, I struggled with that term in this, but it really is that because it's an article of, of knowledge that Scientologists accept as true with absolutely zero evidence of any kind. Mm. And the feeling, the feeling of knowing, is what perpetuates it. Certainty based upon faith and belief, not upon evidence. Where they've got a guy who's telling them. Somebody in QAnon was saying, you know, we're the first people that tell you to think for yourselves. If we were a cult, we wouldn't do that. And you go, yeah, really. <laughs> go look at Alan Hubbard saying, you know, keep the analyzer whirring. 
It's like, and agree with me and you'll be right, you know, and you'll be self-determined as soon as you think exactly what I think, you know, oh yeah, really. Exactly. Do as I say and I will be your slave. Yeah. Right, David Bowie, Labyrinth. I, I love that line. I think it was the it's, best, best what line. A great, what a great movie. Yeah, ah, absolutely. Beautiful. So, um, so these faith articles are, are very few. And one of them, and the most important one, is that you are a spiritual entity called a Thetan. That, that, that is the bedrock fundamental of all of it. If that piece of information is invalidated or is somehow disproven or is somehow rejected, the rest of Scientology makes almost no sense whatsoever. It all, it all hinges on that. The next thing, right up above that, is that it is the Thetan that is creating everything. Space particle position, space particle position, space particle position. We're all chanting that all the time, according to Ron Hubbard. That's right. I didn't know I was doing that until I was told. Who knew? Right? Who knew? I didn't either until he told me. So, so you find this out. You learn about this stuff. And then you get to a lecture set called the Phoenix Lectures. And this is upper level. And this is not... There's, there's a funny thing in Scientology because there's upper level material. Within the culture of Scientology, you have this like, ooh, the OT levels, they're all so you know, freaky and crazy and who knows what you're going to learn on them. And it's all such a big question mark of mysteries. And all the OTs just smile and they just, they just milk it for all they can get because it's all mm -hmm. about status. And Absolutely. so they know you don't. And they're special and you're not. And boy, but they just can't wait for you to become special too. And then we can all just have our group special hug and won't we all just be wonderful. Mm -hmm. But then there is another way of thinking about high-level material. Another way of calling it that would be like this seminal material, this, 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 this very fundamental material. And Scientologists almost routinely, from my experience, and I'm wondering about yours, had a real, it was like esoteric knowledge. It was like there was this level of Scientology knowledge that was encapsulated in the Phoenix lectures and in the Philadelphia doctorate course lectures. Mm -hmm. Those were the releases that everybody had a real hard time understanding. It was really esoteric, high-level stuff. But nobody would describe it that way. They would just say it was very powerful. It was very, sometimes... In an unguarded moment, a fellow Scientologist would admit to you, yeah, that shit's over my head. I have a real hard time understanding that stuff. But most of the time, people were just like, oh, it's so awe-inspiring. It's so difficult. It's so, you know, fundamental and important and amazing that, of course, it's hard to understand. And, you know, you feel almost... It was the only kind of time in Scientology where I actually felt... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, esoteric. Like there was something difficult, really, really difficult about this. And it was going to really take my spiritual investment to really get it. So imagine my surprise when <laughs> I am now out. Okay, so this is the view from inside Scientology. Mm. And for many years... I struggled as a Scientologist and worked my way through dictionaries and encyclopedias and reference books and physics texts and all kinds of crap mm. to try to understand what Hubbard was talking about when he talked about isness 
alter isness, not isness, mm-hmm. right? And whatever. And as isness. As isness. That's right. And mm-hmm. as isness. So these four conditions, right? And I thought after years of being out, I have, you know, I don't look at this shit on a daily basis. Hubbard's words mm-hmm. are drivel, right? But I will go back to the text and I have an extensive soft copy library of Hubbard's works and videos and events and all kinds I've of I've still got 60 bankers boxes of yeah, paper. Yeah, got all the heart. I'd love to, if somebody is out there would like this stuff and can keep it safe because I now this, this last two weeks I've heard that the UCLA collection is finally available. And all of my collection is copied there. There are 100 bankers box material it's been catalogued and it's available. I was fighting for that and they never even let me know. No. Well, I, I found out from the guy who catalogued it, who, who wants to remain nameless. But I've, um, been, I've been trying missing... to get into that collection. So now that I know it's available, I'm going to, because I went out there. I went to UCLA to see that collection oh. and they, and most of it was, was blocked, was hidden. And so if they've no, opened 20, it 20 now, boxes were I'm going available. back out there. Yeah. And I mean, even for me, the most important thing that's in that collection, because I know everything in there, it's all material. I spent two years helping to collect that so that it could go up to Steve Kent's collection Mm. with the idea that we would get microfiches of it. And then it came to it after two years work and the university said, no, copyright. (laughs) So I've still got my hard copies. But the most important thing for me in that collection, which has only become available with the release of the collection, is the final testament of Nibs Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., who was the enforcer and deputy from, from 1952 to 1959. And he, towards his deathbed, there's one-tenth of, ten, of, one-tenth of one percent of Scientology, which is the manuscript he worked on with Paulette Cooper, which is very interesting. But he finally wrote a manuscript called The Telling of Me by Me. Hmm. And if you divide it so that everything he says that he experienced is probably true. Everything he believed that his father told him is bullshit, but he believed it. He believed his father really was actively bringing the powers of hell to earth because that's what his father told him. He believed that his father got the magic from the same guy that gave it to Hitler because that's what his father told him. But the stuff about running cocaine with the mafia is probably true. Right, right. And explains why... I I did this project and uh, this wonderful guy called Ron Lee in Canada and um, I, you know, I I made a significant proportion of my living for a year or two working on this project to make a a documentary about Scientology. And I was flown out to Montreal at one point and we filmed for three days there, uh, putting together a teaser. We had a a producer flown up from LA and I just had to stop him after 10 minutes because he hadn't bothered to read anything and I just monologued you know to camera not really realizing how stupid it is giving all your stuff away for free but then I got a call from Ron who was this brilliant guy who's a National Enquirer reporter for 10 years he was the head of the Romany Council in Canada he made scale models of medieval ships for museums he played the Ood he'd written a novel called Goddamn Gypsy it was just great fun on one of his school friends was Leonard Cohen and he introduced me to Suzanne you know so I got to know her which was quite interesting too but he he called me up and he said I'm sorry the project's off for the moment because the backer 
<clears throat> is in the hospital wing. And it was the use of the word wing that stopped me. He's not in hospital, he's in the hospital wing. And so I said, the hospital wing of what? And he said, oh, the prison he's in. He's a mafia don who wants to get his own back on Hubbard. Which I presume was about the Jack Tower and all of the Florida properties, but it could have been the coke dealing from the 50s. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, things, you know, when you become um, too, too incredible, you become invisible. L. Ron Hubbard. That's right. That one is one that anybody studying the subject needs to memorise. That's true. This is just unbelievable. Nobody could do what this man did. It's impossible. Yeah. To, to enslave so many people, so many really bright people, and get them working 90 hours a week on rice and beans, not allowed to have children, so that he can have attaché cases, each with $100,000 in, stacked up floor to ceiling, just in case he has to do a runner. Exactly. And then he tells us, you know, when people keep leaving places, it's because they've committed crimes. And yet he kept flitting all over the world and it didn't apply to him. Exactly. There exactly. Back to as isness. Well, well, yeah, it's all it's all part of the picture, isn't it? Because mm. yeah, uh, building on what you just said there of, you know, how he fleeced all of us. Well, this is one of the these you know, sacred knowledge or sacred truths, mystical manipulation. These are mm. things Lifton talks about. Absolutely. Right? They're vital. It, They're vital to understand the eight, eight deadly sins of thought reform are essential to understanding what Hubbard and thousands of other uh, authoritarian gurus are doing in the world. Exactly. And and this speaks to, you know, the, the, it was just a, it was funny to come out of this, you know, this esoteric situation, this feeling that I had, you know, the ultimate knowledge, the answers to all life. All, of, all, of, all the answers are here if you can decode them or figure them out or achieve the status and level of, of awareness to, to, to know and understand these things, right? And, um, and you analogize it to whatever you want to that makes sense, you know, a grade school system even, you know what I mean? You can't teach a first grader senior physics, you know, you got you to gotta progress up the levels and then it will all become clear to you. And Gradient scale. Gradient scales. There's so many little, little, you know, this and that and the other thing that they use to, to drag you into this stuff. But there's a very important point here to this, which was which was along the lines of this epiphany that I had. And that is this. Okay, let's get right to it. I went back to these Phoenix lectures. Now, I had spent not a small amount of time when I was a Scientologist. I spent hours, days, weeks of time over, over the years that I was in deciphering and working out and, and, and word clearing and clay demoing and all the other crap we did, the Phoenix lectures and the, and the Philadelphia doctorate course lectures and, and trying to understand and decipher what Hubbard was talking about. And I got to a place when I was in Scientology of certainty that I knew what he meant, that I knew what he was talking about, that it all made sense that if this and then this and then this, and I didn't think too much about all the toothpicks that this all laid on top of, 
right? It was all very carefully constructed. It's a house mm-hmm. of cards, right? But it, yeah. but it looked very strong. Mm-hmm. And I could sit on it. And I went, okay, I got a view from this perspective now. It's solid. It's firm. I understand, right? And I thought I knew something about life. Because Hubbard talks about how a Thetan actually does the creation. How do, you know, what's the nuts and bolts of how a Thetan makes this thing real? How does this exist if, if none of this is real? Well, he, he as is, is it, right? He puts it there and then he tells a little lie about it and then it persists. And somehow that idea, as ridiculous as it sounds, because it is ridiculous, but as ridiculous as it sounds, I thought I now had a grip on something important about the universe. And so, again, imagine my surprise when I go back uh, a couple weeks ago and I open up the same material I had slaved over for years. And I have not looked at this material in years. It's been a long time since I busted open these packs. And I start reading. And I'm expecting to see the things I remembered. Because I had carefully constructed in my mind this sort of, you know, construct of of what Hubbard was talking about. Mm. This was my understanding of it. And I go back and I start reading through his lectures because he gave this material through lecturing mostly. And um, even right now, I am so shocked. at how obvious it was that everything he was saying made absolutely no sense whatsoever. And in order to make it make sense, pouring over it over and over and over again, rereading it, word clearing it, you know, etc. I'm the one who had to basically make it make sense. I had to inject all of this own, my own thinking into it. I had to invent my own ideas to connect these dots he was sort of laying out in this very chaotic, haphazard fashion. In other words, he took a pile of laundry, he took a pile of dirty laundry, and he threw it on the table, and he said, there are the diamonds of wisdom you have been looking for. The emperor's new clothes. Yes. And then I you know, have to somehow sort and fold and do all this work with it. And And rinse it 17 times. Right. And it's still not a pile of diamonds. But I, you know, after you work over a thing long enough with the viewpoint that it must be true, that it must be that you're the one who's not getting it, and it all makes perfect sense if only you could wrap your mind around it, you end up going into the fourth dimension trying to twist your way around the thinking of these ridiculous words, this ridiculous nonsense that he wrote, to make it make sense. And I think the thing I'm trying to say here is not Hubbard's words or drivel. What I'm trying to say is that I didn't realize how much of myself I had to invest in this and how blind I was to the fact that that's exactly what I was doing. Because I had it in my mind that it was the other way around, that it was that it, that, that he was delivering to me these pearls of wisdom, you know.
Absolutely. I, I recently rewatched a Tom Stoppard television play. Tom Stoppard wrote Shakespeare in Love, which is not the, the greatest of his achievements, but it was a great movie and won Oscars. But um, he, he was a very well-known playwright here, a West End playwright. And uh, Professional Foul, this play, is, is about a professor who goes to Czechoslovakia before the end of the Cold War. And he goes there... Um, He's a professor of philosophy and he goes there um, because there's a football match between England and Czechoslovakia and he wants to see it. And it means that he, he manages to walk out of this, all these lectures about semantics, which are really quite amusing, as you see the simultaneous translators trying to take the examples in English. You know, he ran for president, he ran for the door, you know, um, which is Sam Wanamaker, who built the Globe Theatre here. So many meanders. But the... The point is this, the professor at one point says, you can persuade a man to believe almost anything, provided he's clever enough. Bingo. There you go. That's right. And you sent that back to me in reply when I emailed you about this, because it was exactly on point. Exactly yeah. on point. And, and what I'm really trying to communicate here is actually... Uh, an empowering message. I really want to get this across mm. right now, and, and, and I'm struggling a little bit with this because it's still kind of new for me. But I want to. But I, uh, what I'm trying to communicate here is not look at how ridiculous Hubbard is. What I'm trying to say is look at how amazing we all were for investing so much of ourselves in this material that was drivel. It was ridiculous nonsense. I've been translating this stuff for people for years, just like you have been. Yeah. And I thought for a very long time, well, I'm just this buffer person in between. And, you know, and there's this knowledge and they, you know, it's a little hard to read. It's a little hard to understand, but you know, I, 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 you know, I have my understanding of it and I'll give it to people. And that, that way it'll make more sense to them. I didn't realize what I was doing was, you know, was actually, making something that made zero sense make sense for people. And, and, it, and it was this transition period, this recovery period, where you get a chance to step away from it long enough, hard enough, and be exposed to other things that you can go back to it and go, oh, my God, this never made sense. I was the one who was having to make it make sense in order for my beliefs to be maintained, mm -hmm. in order for me to continue to believe that Hubbard was a genius, that he was an authority figure, that he was somebody I needed to listen to. His words had to make sense. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, I've talked, and you know, you know, about all the mechanisms and indoctrination techniques and things they do to you in the classrooms with the, mm -hmm. the word clearing, find what word you didn't understand, all that. So it's all really, it's a well-tuned machine. And this is just another level I think I'm realizing now of, of just how powerful our minds can be you know? and how powerful these manipulation techniques can be that you really can see red in blue. You really can make absolute chaos look to you as though it is an ordered, sensible, you know, even distribution of things. When it's just chaos, it's, it's just mess, there's nothing there. You can make it make sense. And I've been saying this for years, but it never, it has not hit me as powerfully or personally 
as this did. Mm. I think we do tend to have amplifications of the same revelation yes. throughout our lives. Yes. Um, but this particular, I was very lucky because when I left, I'd not worked in Scientology, I'd not been in this organisation, I had not been what's called a total convert. I'd lived out in the world. I knew to switch between languages when I was talking to non-Scientologists. Right. I didn't call them wogs at any point <laughs> or, or raw meat dead in the head or yeah. any of that stuff. I didn't have the contempt for them that is expressed in Scientology either. And I found it perfectly easy to, you know, when I was meant to kind of, I was asked to go over the rainbow to join Ron Hubbard's personal staff. And instead I went to art college because that seemed more important to me. And it was, it was great fun. Two years in art college, great. Um, but when I left, I was in this peculiar position that, that I had achieved the high level of operating Thetan uh, 5, the fifth level of the then seven available upper levels, which I think was the 25th level on the bridge that goes upwards, which is one of the confusions of Scientology, <laughs> up the bridge. That's right. Over bridges, children. Um, and, you know, it's quite simple. When you look at Scientology, it doesn't make sense. But so I I got to a very high level. I'd, I'd done the data series evaluators course, the greatest course about logic ever devised by humanity. Um, made Immanuel Kant look like an old pissant. Um, I I was a class two auditor. I was a method one auditor. I was a Dianetic auditor before they reversed the position of Dianetics and put it above the academy levels. So I had... A pretty. I'd read all of his books, all of his Scientology books. Um, I had a pretty good idea about it, but I was not one of the conoscenti. I was not one of the inner circle. As soon as I left and was appointed by Captain Bill Robertson as the chairman of the OT Committee UK, I'd never met this bloke. I didn't know who he was. I had no idea who he was. Outside of the Sea Orc, he was un unknown uh, during the nine years I was involved. And uh, I realised in a couple of weeks that he was a lunatic, you know, and he spent eight months trying to persuade me to go back in. So I got to know him pretty well. But nonetheless, I suddenly had been appointed the, the guy in charge of the United Kingdom. And that meant that people flocked to me. I protected the new organisations, the Advanced Ability Centres, the um, various other little organisations. I protected them legally. I, I, I dealt with the newspapers and the TV. I, you know, I, I was like the Guardian's office used to be, only I didn't harass anybody or steal anything or commit any criminal acts. That was a significant difference. But it meant that I had access to the OT committee proper in East Grinstead. And these were people who had been in Scientology for years. And I particularly remember talking with Eileen Griswold. Bert Griswold was one of the great Scientology auditors. Um, highly qualified and just a genuinely lovely human being you know you meet some of them in there and it, with a philosophical view of things you know that he mm -hmm. stepped back from the organization because as Cyril Vosper once said I don't think it will work without a fascist organization so you know I'm afraid it was uh, authoritarian no democracy no consensus it's fascist kids it's you know just look at it that's what it is and that's not a good thing 
But Bert and Eileen talked to me about these weekly meetings that had taken place over a course of years in East Grinstead, where the OTs, the people who are above OT3, would sit down and talk. And they decided that they would dissect the axioms of Scientology. That they there would talk about them. Yep. And what Eileen admitted to me was that they'd become totally lost. They had no idea. Now, I took up just one axiom with a, a very convinced, a wonderful young Irish woman who was auditing people, giving them Scientology counselling. And here is the axiom. It's axiom four, which you probably have memorised already. Space is a viewpoint of dimension. Yep. Now, I think in the Phoenix Lectures, Hubbard boasted that he was the first person ever to define space without the terms of energy or matter. Correct. Well, space is a viewpoint of dimension. And I asked this young woman to explain this to me. And she said, oh, that's easy. Two hours later, she said, it's tautology. It's nonsense. It doesn't tell you anything at all. Space is a viewpoint of dimension. Yep. If you go further in, there's one that particularly interests it, it, me. It, it, tell, me what, tell me what you think of this, but I think that's basically about uh, as nonsensical a statement as saying, well, seeing is when you're standing there looking. Yeah. Like it's that's, a tautology. That's, a, that's about just from, as the viewpoint much of dimension. Right. You know, like, Okay, you can see is a thing with wheels. Like, okay, like that doesn't tell you really a whole lot of anything. Yeah, and then you come to uh, relativity theory, and uh, if if you must, and and Einstein tells us about space time. Mm -hmm. That the concept in physics is there isn't space and time. There's space time. Now there you are starting to get an understanding of something and it's curved, as Homer Simpson has demonstrated. Um, it's, it's the best one I've seen. I mean, the, the um, oh, what's that Nicholas Rogue movie with Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio, Einstein and Joe McCarthy. In. Uh, oh, I'm not familiar with this reference. Oh, it's a great, but in it, Marilyn Monroe demonstrates relativity theory using a torch and a toy train set, which is oh. absolutely... <laughs> That's how I understand it. Um, they're, they're, one of the ones that gets me is um, where he's talking about truth. Mm. And um, truth is the exact time, place form, time place, form, and event. I very early on realized that there's an aspect missing from that. And that's who? Who is the observer? Yes. Who's there? Who is the object? Who is being seen and who is doing the seeing? Which, again, are questions that are taken up in, in physics in the Copenhagen interpretation. Right. Uh, because, the, because, well, see, and it's funny because in Scientology you have a false assumption. And that is that you can have a viewpoint or an eye or uh, uh, a beingness. You know, uh, uh, you can have a living entity, so to speak, objectively above it all, sort of a God view. Mm -hmm. And Hubbard posits these ideas as though they are told from some God view of this is an objective truth. 
you know, truth is the exact time, place, form, and event, is the most context-specific statement you could, you know, you could, you could make. But he pretends it's this big non-contextual. It's always sort of true. I, I, I'm fumbling with my words a little bit here, but, it's, but the idea is that it's, 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 again, it's opposite world. You know, it's, he, he keeps throwing you curves. He keeps throwing you pieces of, of knowledge that are supposed to be universally applicable. And then when you start diving in to try to figure them out or use them, they all, it, it's like confetti. It just falls apart in your hands. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, there's nothing solid there that you can really use. But, it, but he keeps putting it there and asserting that these are the most fundamental truths that you could ever use to figure out anything. And then he has the gall to say, and this is how I figured out Scientology. Right. He was a nuclear physicist, so he will, of course, have been aware that the observer always interferes with the experiment, which comes out of the Copenhagen interpretation. Now, of course, as, as we know, and as he admitted in a lecture of the 23rd of I think it's the 23rd of September 1950, called Introduction to Dianetics, he failed a course in atomic and molecular physics, which is not the same as nuclear physics. Exactly. They absolutely separate subjects. Nuclear physics was not being taught in any university in the world when he was at George Washington, because the Copenhagen interpretation only dates to 1928. So it hadn't oh, I, guess even... that, I guess that makes Elrond Hubbard a liar then, doesn't it? Oh, no. Do you mean he wasn't breaking Broncos before he could walk? I'm sorry, man. I, I know it's rough. I know it's rough hearing this for the first time. He wasn't black. a full brave in the Blackfoot when he was two years old? No. No, he oh, wasn't. Dear. No, I know. So one of the other ones which I would like, um, but, you know, the axioms of Scientology are meant to be fundamental. Exactly. Um, I was in touch with uh, Perry Chapterlane, who was a mathematician who was an early follower of Hubbard who left and then years later I'm corresponding with him and he's telling me you know as you get older you'll realize that actually he had a lot of truth in what he was saying and it's like the older I get the it's just not happening yet I'm going to be 66 in two weeks time so how old do I have to get but he said Perry Chapdelin told me that the Dianetic axioms which are the first thing Hubbard came to him and said look we've got to make this thing kind of look more like a science I've got a bottle of whiskey so tonight we're going to write the Dianetic. Did you ever try and, oh, Lambda and Theta? Oh, no. Nonsense. But then we get the Scientology axioms, which I thought I had some kind of handle on, but the OT committee East Grinstead spent years unable to decipher. There is, I mean, there are lots of goodies in here, but I'm just going to go to one of them. Axiom 31. Goodness and badness, beautifulness and ugliness are alike considerations and have no other basis than opinion. Goodness and badness have no other basis than opinion. None of your pro-survival, anti-survival guff here. Ethics is based upon opinion. That's right. Morality is based upon opinion. It has no other basis. I mean, there are arguments there, but I do get what you're saying, you know. Well, as... <clears throat> He also said absolutes are unobtainable, and that's an absolute statement. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. The, the point is that, yes, relativity has to come into this. In terms of what's good or bad for me, putting a plastic bag over my head and right. taping it round <laughs> would be bad. And that's not an opinion. That's exactly. a fact. Exactly. And, that's, and, and, I, and I'm totally with you on that. 
totally with you on that. I've unfortunately I've had ar- ar- too many arguments with theists about God being the source of objective morality, and I am a little wounded from those discussions as well. So that's yeah, where and, my and philosophically we. I think it's valid. You know, this is a really good point to bring up Star Wars. Um, Oh, you know, only Sith deal in absolutes. (laughs) It it is said. Absolutely. It is said. (laughs) It is said (laughs) that, that in fact, the Force entered the first Star Wars movie after they started production. It's not there in the original George Lucas script. So, which is... Interesting. I saw an interview with various people mm. who were on the crew, and they're saying, no, uh, the script was re- revised, and they came up with this idea of the Force. And the fundamental error in Star Wars, and why the... Um, you know, we, we had a point in 2001 where our, our census showed over 300,000 people believed themselves to be Jedi mm-hmm. by religion in this country. It had diminished to just over 100,000. We haven't yet got the... Your know, census was done in March this year, so we'll find out. I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who put Sith because we get a very bad press, but we're obviously a lot cooler Obviously, than the Jedi who make up all of these stories about us and have an 800-year-old puppet speak English he cannot yet. After 800 years? You're kidding me. And this is meant to be one of the super bright beings. The mistake of the Force is very simple. It is taken from what is called by most people the yin-yang, the daichi, which is the emblem of the two tadpoles, each with Mm -hmm. the eye of the other in them. This is a foundational idea in Chinese Taoist philosophy, which says that there are two forces in the world. They're not good and evil. In their origins, they are the sunny side of the hill, and the shady side of the hill. The sunny side being called yang, and the shady side being called yin. Later, they gradually accumulate all of these properties, which Hubbard will turn into the two-terminal universe. The Buddha realised that there were at least four things going on, so he's got something else going on there. But the idea is they move into each other and through each other, and they're never categorised as good or evil. They are the balance of forces. And so... Star Wars tried to take this very profound Chinese idea and turned it into Christian dualism. Mm. Devil, God. And so from that point of view, goodness and badness, yes, they're relative. They're relative to, you know, as Hubbard said, to survival. That is true. And the survival of, you know, dengue fever and malaria relies upon the survival of, of mosquitoes. And there are environmentalists who tell me that that we mustn't change the food chain at all because then we'll have catastrophe. So if we wiped out mosquitoes and dengue fever and malaria, which kill more people than any other diseases, I believe, where would we be? Would the tigers still be with us, you know? Well, and, these are these are legit questions. I mean, that what you, yeah. the, the question you just asked was a legit question. I mean, in terms of ec- ecological chains and and ecosystems and stuff. And this is something we've been, you know, pretty woefully bad at for, for most of our existence as human beings is, the, is, is not, is thinking beyond the short-term immediate 
satisfactory, where's my next meal coming from? We're very short-sighted that way. So this is mm. so this kind of philosophy is what civilizes us. And and this is really important stuff from that perspective, you know. And in fact, I I, I didn't think of this earlier, but now that it's coming up, I, I very much have been wanting to ask you about this. Because it it parallels a little bit of, you know, you find yourself, maybe you've done this, I sure as hell have. I find myself, and I've commented before, how I am paralleling many of the things you've already, you know, journey you've walked, I've had to walk myself. We all sort of have to take these steps on our own because we're only aware of what we're aware of. And, and as we go forward, we become aware. There, there of is no white taped route that everybody can travel. <laughs> Realization is something that happens in your head. And as the Buddhist said, I can't give you the moon, but I can be a finger pointing at the moon. And, and that's the most that I've ever been. It will. Exactly. And I, and like today I see 10 points from Bertrand Russell of skeptical, critical, you know, good, good, rational thinking. You know, what I mean, don't, don't, don't invest too much in anybody. You know, that's like the first point, right? And nine more points, all of which I've had to independently discover for myself. Then I see Bertrand Russell wrote them all down, and I go, "Thanks, Bertrand. Where were you eight years ago?" Right? But at the same time, you know, there is no experience for that lived experience of learning it and figuring it out for yourself, right? So there is that, but one of the things I've been sort of arriving to is very much in alignment with what you just talked about, this yin-yang thing. And I've been thinking about yin-yang. I've been thinking about that symbol, and I've been thinking about the fact that, you know, that we can model and do model so much of our thinking around dichotomies, around the, the push-pull, the, the, the black-white, right? So much of our thinking is that. It's either that or it's spectrum-based. And I prefer spectrum-based mm, you know, thinking because, you know, because 50 shades of gray is a lot more accurate than black and white. You know, these are... Unless, of course, you get a bit of a flogging along the way. Exactly. But, you, know, you might get flogged along the way, but you'll figure in, it out. In terms of describing how to make an abusive relationship, I'm told that book is extremely good. Yeah, exactly. I haven't read it. You know, exactly. I haven't either because it's trash. And there are far more than 50 shades. The human eye can recognize 80,000 tones and colors, according to... Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an artist, so color theory is one of my things. 80,000. Yeah, There's what's a spectrum amazing? for you. That's right. We are amazing that way. And this is one of the reasons why uh, AI and why visual humans and stuff still don't, still don't work. We, we just we can still see through it. So anyway, point is that I've been considering, um, you know, sort of philosophically or sort of looking at things in terms of, you know, cults and control and, and, and how we, you know, the, way we, the ways that we get along and the ways we don't get along. Mm-hmm. And, and it's become very clear to me that my whole life has been based around pre-Scientology, going all the way back to when I was a kid. And I've been remembering and thinking about some things I was doing as a kid and wondering about them a little bit, you know, because um, I'm a, you know, an introspective guy. And, and it really hit me hard that my whole life has been very focused around wanting people to get along. I've always hated it when people are at each other's throats. It's been a a thing that I have never had to think about. It's always been an impulse in me to try to quell or, come on, guys, let's get along. And I have no idea where that comes from. But 
I'm happy that that is a basic impulse of mine. I, yeah. I feel that I feel proud of that. Um, yes. And I, and on that note, I feel that there's something important here in recognizing or acknowledging that that the mere existence of conflict or the mere existence of a yin yang of a of a of a of opposing forces is not something to fret about it's not something to freak out about it's not the problem that has to be solved it's what we do with it that is where we get into problems you know a lot of people Go at life thinking in this two-terminal dichotomy of, you know, I'm on this side and the other side is bad. A good, bad, good, bad. And bad must somehow be eradicated. We have to get rid of it. it. Everything would be great if it was all us, if everything was good. And you learn, you learn, I learn through our, through our journey and our school of hard knocks that that is the biggest lie we might be telling ourselves. Because there is no such thing as a pure side, as pure goodness, as pure anything. It's all messy. It's all shades. And, and in fact, the thing that makes a thing good is the fact that a bad exists to compare it to. If there's no comparison, there is no good. It's just, you know, it's just this and then there's that. So in a way, we, we are always going to have and are always going to need these opposing forces, this, this balance, you know. And, I, and I'm seeing so much more clearly now that, that trying to cut the, cut the you know, the, 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 the framework out from underneath that you know, trying to win all the time, trying to succeed, trying to dominate, trying to take trying over. Trying to be right. Yes, trying to be, I'm right, and therefore everybody else is wrong. This, this idea of a zero-sum game, you know, that life is somehow a zero-sum game, and if I get everything, you get nothing, and that's how it should be, is in, it, it's, it's crazy-making it's cult making, it's cult inducing, and it's very, very, very bad for us. And we, and it's, you know, it's foundational to our society. That you know, yeah. and returning to the Daichi, the Yin Yang, this is not the idea of opposing forces. This is the I, idea of balancing forces. So, if you have too much Yang, you need Yin. If you have too much Yin, you need Yang. Um, I've, I've spent the whole of my adult life studying the philosophy behind this. When I was 17, I first read a copy of the Tao Te Ching and it blew my mind. It, it was the great, I'd, you know, at 13, I'd stopped believing in God. I just, it just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And it was fine that other people did, but, you know, that's never been a problem for me because that's their metaphor. That's how they see the world. And that, that's good. If what they're believing is improbable, and what I'm believing is more probable, then that's worth the discussion. But there is no, this is I'm right and this is true, because, you know, I have the conversation with theists and with atheists. I am myself an agnostic. I do not know, and I can take no position of knowledge. If, 
you know, and when a, a theist, when an atheist will say to me, oh, they, they just do what their priests and their books tell them. They don't actually have knowledge. They, they have feelings that, that they then believe are true and therefore they believe God exists. And then I go the other way, which is to say, well, what is true? And I'm told the Big Bang is true. And so I say, so you believe that an 11-dimensional P-membrane collapsed? And they go, what? And I go, you believe that an 11-dimensional P-membrane collapsed? You've read Stephen Hawking's proof, which has convinced you that mathematically... And they go, no. So I say, so you've read a book that tells you this is true? Same way that the Catholic has read a book that tells him this is true. And you now have the pretense of superiority and knowledge that they have. I don't take that position. Um, I probably have more understanding of what an 11-dimensional P-membrane is than they do because I've heard about it. And I know the problems with dark matter and dark energy because I've spent years, 30 years, reading about it. I don't understand it. But I understand that in the past... We have this, we laugh about, before Lavoisier, people thought that there was this stuff called phlogiston that was given off when things were burned. And ha ha ha. Well, I see dark energy and dark matter in exactly the same way, superstrings. We name things until we can come to understand them. Yep. If we do not have the humility to understand, you know, as Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, you know, and as Socrates said, he who knows, he knows knows nothing. He who knows he knows nothing really knows. And Lao Tzu also says, as I grew older, as I've grown older, other people around me acquire knowledge. I lose it. I, and I would say, you know, when I was 18, I probably figured I had 1% of the world's knowledge, you know. Now I know that I don't have a millionth of a percent of the world's knowledge, and I'm perfectly happy and comfortable. And you know, here's the advertising plug. You can read my translation. It is a character-by-character -character translation of the Tao Te Ching. It is available at Amazon and all good bookstores. And for me, it, it really helped to unscramble my head. And I've used it, I've actually used it with a Jehovah's Witness um, to say, here's something outside of the thinking you had. This is not uh, something that's trying to persuade you of what's happening in the world. This is somebody who's saying, Oh, the universe must have come from somewhere. I don't know where. Let's give it this name, Tao, which will then be mistranslated as the path or the way, which is nonsense, though the character that represents it is of a man walking. Um, let's say, I don't know where it came from, but it came from somewhere, and wherever it came from probably still exists, whatever it is coming out of. And if you want to get into physics, that's the ideas of David Bohm, who was... Uh, both Einstein and Oppenheimer rated him as one of the great physicists. And then he was ostracised for talking about um, patterns within chaos in the late 1950s. He left America, he came and taught here. But he put forward a theory which he called unfolding and the implicate order. And it's basically that the universe is coming into being at every moment. And it fits very nicely with the fundamental idea of a ground of being something out of which everything comes. And the Tao is one way of looking at that. And it's a way of stimulating thought rather than a way of acquiring beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what um, I appreciate is stimulating thought. 
Yeah. Um, because if we can, you know, all my preaching about critical thinking, and I'm never going to stop, no. um, is about trying to do exactly that, stimulate thought. I want to get mm. people thinking more. I For think themselves, I, not know. agreeing more. Yes. Not saying, oh, yes. wow, you're the guru and, and I believe in you. I mean, send me the money by all means. You know, don't <laughs> mind that. But, but the idea that any human being has ultimate knowledge... It, it's like the idea that's put forward in Buddhism that, that after five days of meditating beneath the Bodhi tree, the Buddha suddenly reaches enlightenment and he strikes the ground three times and the whole world shakes. Yeah, well, maybe not. And he then says, I will now enter Nibbana, Nirvana. And Mara, the one of the deities of death, who has been tempting him with his daughters and trying to get to his attention, says, no, you mustn't leave. And so, in fact, the Buddha doesn't achieve enlightenment. He puts enlightenment aside to teach for 42 years. Notice the Douglas Adams number there. <laughs> and with, you know, holds himself back because Mara says, you know, the Buddha says men's eyes are covered in dust. And Mara says, but on some of them, the dust is thin. And this leads us to a teaching in Buddhism that is never mentioned, the Pratikeya teaching, which is the teaching that the Buddha gave to say there have been many Buddhas before me, but they did not teach. Mm -hmm. you don't, you know, they actually did that last step. And they just said, I'm out of here, basically. Evaporated <laughs> into Nirvana. <laughs> but, so this idea that what I'm saying that for is to say that even the Buddha is admitting fallibility and that brings us to the astonishing Kalama Sutta where he says don't believe in tradition don't believe in what your parents tell you don't believe in what your priests and the magicians tell you don't believe in something that you've imagined test everything and if it conforms to your expectation your reality then accept it now Elrond Hubbard perverted this into what's true for you is true Exactly. Um, but he certainly is referring to the Kalama Sutta, which somebody has brought him at second hand. Do you know this story about the Phoenix Lectures that somebody donated a metaphysical library to Hubbard and he sent one of his assistants to go and have a look through it and see if there's anything he could use? Because he certainly wasn't going to waste his own time reading these things. Because right. if Alistair Crowley didn't write it, Again, in the Phoenix Lectures, you've got this little clue, another one about Alistair Crowley. He refers to the Tao Te Ching. Then he spells the word Jing, not with the way Giles, which is C-H-I-N-G, or the Pinyin, which is um, J-I-N-G, uh -huh. but with a K. Very few people in the English language have used a K. Alistair Crowley's terrible translation of the Tao Te Ching has that K. Interesting. And that's where Hubbard gets it from, along with so much else, like creative processing or OTTR0, sitting eyes closed in front of somebody. They come directly from Crowley, who also proved to be a very poor guru. Um, on the Buddhist, you know, while I'm ranting about Buddhism, the, I, I talked with John Sanborn, who was the director of publications for Hubbard from 1954 to 1978, and eventually one day transferring another million dollars into Hubbard's bank account, realized he'd been living off $5 a week and he was done with it. And he yeah. told me, I decided at that point, I would never again say a kind word about Ron Hubbard, who of course he knew very well. 
I would always call him Tubby from from then on. But he talked to me about the book Him of Asia. Yes. And he said Hubbard actually gave him the manuscript as soon as he became, he took over from Alfie Haas in 1954 and said, here, publish this. And he read it and he cringed. It, it said, I am Maitreya. And it took 20 years for him to realise if he turned it into am I Maitreya, it wouldn't make him cringe as much. But the proof is very simple. The proof is very simple. If Hubbard had been Maitreya, as he claimed, we would all be in Nirvana now. Because Maitreya, from the Book of the Great Deceased, the Buddhist in the Digha Nikaya, um, one of the principal collections of sutras, the Digha Nikaya, Book of the Great Deceased, has this character who is not red-headed, who doesn't arise two and a half thousand years later, who's not born in the West. It says none of those things. I've read it. Um, what it does say is that Maitreya is this posited future Buddha who will take all living beings into Nirvana. Hubbard is dead. Ipso facto, quadirat demonstrandum, Hubbard was not Maitreya. He was a very naughty boy. Big time and great, great uh, diatribe there on that because that's because you have, read it, you know, no, seriously, because, you know, we all got so excited. I'll remember and I and you might recall having heard of this. There was a trip made to flag. I think it was in the late 90s or early 2000s. This is the Flag Land Base in Clearwater, yes. Florida. Flag. That's right. Yeah. A trip, trip to Flag, to, to the Flag Service Org, um, by a group, an entourage of Buddhists. And who these Buddhists were, which sect, where they were from, I could not tell you. But they were fully garbed Buddhists, bald, you know, the whole Orange. uniform, all of that, right? Yeah, orange outfits. They go to flag. They do this. Just like people in American prisons, isn't it? The yeah, color there. Isn't it? Don't worry. Uh, and they said something about they were there to research or address or whatever this Maitreya mm -hmm. prophecy or something. And then there was a great kerfuffle about it as though something was going to happen. And then nothing, nothing. Radio silence after that. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to me to watch that that process unfold because Scientology thought it was this was pre this was before they had joined up with the nation of Islam. I think this was a I think this was an earlier effort to try to find a big ally that they could join up with. And they thought that the hymn of Asia track would give them an in to the Buddhist world. And mm. and I think they would have taken the Buddhist world over the nation of Islam world because it's significantly larger and might have given them even an inroad into China where they've been locked out for decades. So it, it, all kinds of cults get into, into China, but Scientology can't. Mm. And, and they might have thought that would be their inroad on that line, but it failed miserably for, I believe, exactly the reasons you laid out amongst, you know, probably many others. Uh, it's also, one, one could also ask about the legitimacy of the sect because... The Buddhist world is as splintered as the Christian and the Jewish world exactly. and the Muslim world. The, the amount of different groups, some of them really quite nasty. Um, Nichiren Shosu, Sokogakai, who have political influence, MPs in Japan, and um, pray to their Gohanzan. To, you know, Tina Turner was involved with them. So they have this scroll that they pray to to, to be given material things mm. because of this bizarre 
uh, interpretation, the new Kadampa tradition. Um, oh, yeah. I've got which, videos about. Yeah, we've talked is, to. Yeah. It's not Buddhist at all. They, they worship um, Doje Shugden, who's a demon. Right. Um, then when you look at the Tibetan groups themselves, you have three groups, red hats and yellow hats. The Dalai Lama is the head of only one sect. And, of course, uh, the Panchen Lama is in the Chinese hold. You know, they, they, he's been working with them for years and decrying the Dalai Lama. You then get into the Zen sects and you find, well, no, there is no such thing as Zen. There's Rinzai Zen, Obaku Zen, Soto Zen, and they all deny one another. The Western version that we have, which I studied as an 18-year-old um, in a monastery in Northumberland here, um, where I learned my Zazen, um, much good as it did me. But that is the sect set up by Juyu Kenet, who was the first Western Zen master, having received the three transmissions. And there is no doubt in my mind that she created an authoritarian cult. The first thing I was told when I arrived at 18 at Throsselhold Priory, intending to stay for six months and only lasting three days because the experience was amazing, it was so overwhelming, I had to take it away. And it really was important to me. I learned a great deal. Um, and the, the guy running it, Daiji Strathairn, was brilliant. I was allowed a what's called Mondo, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. And the monk who took me there, there were only five monks there, grizzled at me all the way saying, I've been here for three months and he hasn't talked to me yet. I was like, well, I probably don't have the nice long hair that I've got or something, you know, whatever. But he was very instructive. When you look at the history of the group, however, he didn't exist. When you go to their website, he didn't exist. The first abbot was, and it's some other guy, Daiji Strathern, defected to the Tibetans. So, you know, he's written out history. But the first thing I was told was we don't use the Zen stick. Now, I'd read all of these, you know, Zen flesh, Zen bones, all of these lovely books about Zen, this one Alan Watts, you know, all of this great stuff about Zen. It's fantastic. And the first thing they tell me is we don't use the Zen stick. And I'd never heard of the Zen stick. Have you ever heard of the Zen stick? You should get one. Um, Star Wars, Zen stick, lightsaber. That's it. That'll do it. If you are meditating in a Soto Zen monastery, and I presume the same is true for Rinzai and Obaku, and if you move at all, a guy comes around and thwacks you. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah, so cult group, you know, where, where are we going? So who knows, you know, which... The only thing I can say is they weren't Zen because they tend to wear black rather than orange. <laughs> but... Well, you know, and it, and it sort of speaks to... The lie that we all, these, these pleasing lies we all tell ourselves, right, or sort of seek to sort of understand the world with is really, I think, a more accurate representation of, of what we're doing. Yes. We're trying to categorize and understand the world. That's what our brains do. And, and so, you know, we, we, we get these labels, we get these ideas, and we go, oh, okay, well, that fits in this box here. And, it, and it's almost a one-for-one -one thing that when you go and go, okay, well, I want to know more about that, and you start looking into it, you find out, oh, yeah, this simplistic veneer representation that I've sort of categorized and created yeah, it's kind of bullshit because the fact is that it's really, uh, you know, a whole pit of knowledge and, and nuance and understanding and history mm. and culture and context and, mm. and so many other things. And you dive into it and you go, oh, I didn't understand any of this. Well, of course you didn't because you only categorized it at a surface level just so you could kind of think with it. But, you know, and I think we get down on ourselves a little bit about that, too. But 
it is isn't it so fascinating how there's a whole galaxy of knowledge to be gained mm-hmm. diving down almost any of these rabbit holes there's so much to know so much richness to know you know one, one of the, you know one of the things that i've encountered soon after leaving Scientology and in, in trying to find out where it had come from was the work of count alfred kozibski general semantics this is and I, I have wondered about forever I couldn't get my head around it, but it was pretty evident that science of survival was a pastiche on science and sanity, the the great Kozybski, which I have not read. But he did come up with a couple of formulations that that I've adhered to ever since. The first is the word is not the thing itself. It's a simple enough idea, but the word is not the thing itself. Okay, the map is not the territory. Now, I later found out that Kant in the 18th century put this idea forward. I haven't read him either. Um, It's the second time he's been mentioned in this conversation, though, so well done, Immanuel Kant. Um, I I found out today that that his birthplace is a a Russian, now a Russian um, city, which is uh, completely surrounded. It's called uh, Kaliningrad. And it used to be called Konigsberg, and it was the um, capital of Prussia. But it's remained Russian territory, even though there is no access, no border with Russia or any other Russian territory. It's sort of yeah. over near Lithuania. So there you go. And that's where Kant's tomb is, if you, apparently, if you want to go and visit it. But he said, there is the world out there, and there is the world in here, which Hubbard was to get hold of, but not really to explain thoroughly the personal universe. What Hubbard didn't get to, which is vital, is we live in our interpretation of the world. Right, right. And Hubbard doesn't really help you at all with that. That's right. Once you've got that idea, then you can see that that interpretation can be really badly wrong. So if, for example, you look at QAnon um, and the Q drops, why aren't they called Q tips? You know, it'd be much easier. You could stick them in your ears and clean them out. Um, the, you look at some of these nonsensical statements, and I've I've just finished. Um, you know, we were up at Toronto with uh, Jim Beverly, and here's his last book, James O. Beverly, the QAnon deception. Damn, he's which, put a whole book out about QAnon already. Yeah, wow. uh, and he, as he says, there are only two other books criticizing QAnon, and one of them's got a lot of swearing in it, which he doesn't approve of. Um, I don't approve it really either. Huh. No real need for it, but but he's got <laughs> some. You know, he, I didn't realise this. There's actually a Christian church where one of the pastors is a retired colonel who interprets the cue drops mm-hmm. for the congregation. Mm-hmm. There are mega churches that have become involved in this, and and you're sort of going, this is this is so familiar. You know, he prophesies that Hillary Clinton will be arrested on this day, and nothing happens. And it's like, isn't that kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the end of the world? Isn't cognitive dissonance, oh yeah, Leon Festinger told us that the more evidence there is against what you believe, the stronger, more rigid your belief will become. So we live in our interpretation of the world. Yes. And, you know, take take another example. Um, One of the things I'm looking into at the moment is the foundations of racism. Anti-Semitism, which I've been studying for a long time and I've, I've published a little bit about in a book called Anti-Semitism and Psychiatry. I accidentally ended up co-authoring a, 
a chapter with Steve Hassan, and and so we, you know, I did that. Uh, but it made me ask the question: Well, what is anti-Semitism? What does it mean? Who are the Semites? Who are these people against? Because my understanding for a very long time has been that the people that went to Israel, most of them have no ancestors there. That they're Khazars. They, the whole country that converted in the ninth century. Uh, Arthur Kersler wrote a book years ago called The Thirteenth Tribe, where he talks about this. And he shows that historically, this huge number of people they have no origins there. Recently, um, genetic testing has shown the probability that the true Jews, the inhabitants of Judea and Israel, are now called Palestinians. Genetic testing mm. shows this. Mm. What appears to have happened, and looking at the language of the Palestinians, they are not part of the broader Arab group. They are a unique group. What appears to have happened, there was no diaspora. The Romans didn't disperse the Jews. They were already dispersing themselves. So that's another myth that's gone on. These are horrible things to say. But it would appear that the Jews largely converted to Islam. Wow. And stayed where they were. Well, that then you have the various... Ashkenazim, Sephardim, all of the various communities. But even even without looking at that, which angers some Jews... Yeah, I'm pretty uh, sure there's some pissed people already from what you said. Yeah. There, Just, I mean, in, in I know anything about this. I know nothing. So anybody out there right now watching this thinking, why isn't Chris jumping on this or something? I'm going to tell you why, because I don't know a goddamn thing about this. So please continue. <laughs> Just, that's interesting. This guy's a professor at Tel Aviv University. He's a professor of history. Um, they have a separate department of Jewish history, and the people there don't talk to him. Wow. He, he's a friend of our friend Yuval Lohr, who's mentioned in the book. Mm. And the invention of the Jewish people. So who are the Semites? Why would people hate these people if, well, they're from different races? There are black Jews. Sammy Davis Jr., Famously, a one-eyed Negro Jew, as he put it. You know, well, it's not an e can't have been an easy life. And what a brilliantly talented man he was! Wonderful man, yeah. great dancer too. It's the thing people don't know, don't know he, about him. And he experimented with Dianetics. <laughs> oh no, I didn't know that. Poor he, man. You didn't know that? Yeah, he actually said it on Johnny Carson show one night. And did his vision Wait, come back in the blind no, eye? No, not at all. It was late oh. in his life, and I think he had died shortly after. But it was. But he actually said, yeah, I was messing around with Dianetics a little bit. Oh, dear. So I know. That, after all of that. So the, the idea that you can be against these people, that there can be this thing called Zionism, would, would mean that they're all of one body. But they aren't. Racially, they aren't. Right. Uh, religiously, they most certainly aren't. You know, if well, you look at you know, Haredi beliefs or conservative Jewish beliefs. No, not even remotely. But, yeah. you know, since when has, you know, since when has hate needed a, a justifiable truth to exist, but you know? It doesn't. But people who believe absurdities will commit atrocities, as a wise man That's right. once wisely said. But to undermine these ideas of race, which is there are no races. Right. There is only one human stock. That's right. Because we can interbreed. <laughs> That's the simple biological, you know, 
Unlike a horse and a donkey breeding to make a mule which will be sterile, human beings can interbreed, therefore we are sub-species of a single species, not races. Even the word genocide, which suggests that you're killing off a genus of human beings, it's a wrong word. It's subspeciesicide. That's you know, well, I tell you, it, you point this stuff out, and and I and I have, I because I am a hundred percent on board with you on this. I I can't speak to Jewish history, Jewish, you know, whatever. I can't. And that's why I am staying completely quiet about this whole mm. conflict right it's now. best because you all get the hate mail. Oh, God. I got nothing to say about it I, except what I will say, and I will always say this, is I want people to get along. And I think that what's going on there is ridiculous. But And we have to come back to the factual basis. And, and I will quote a Jew on this, Isaiah Berlin, who said the only thing we have to be intolerant of is intolerance. Yeah. In this and case, I agree. So yeah. also looking at the terrible uh, persecution of black people mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, especially, but in other places as well. But the United States you know, it is, is winning it since South Africa started i suppose australia has been you know when there were there were 38 deaths in detention in south africa there were 180 in australia during the same period but we didn't accuse them of apartheid um still going on there i'm afraid the but when we look at the the origins of this there's a sociologist called uh, du bois I, i'm sure his name would have been dubois but he lived in america so <laughs> du bois who in about 1902, complained about the religion of whiteness. And you start going, this is a, it's an invention, probably of the 17th century, just as Zionism was. Zionism was invented in 1620 by English Puritans. It took 250 years to persuade anybody Jewish that going back to Jerusalem or Zion was a good idea. But the Puritans kept pushing it because they interpreted the book of Revelation to say the Jews must all go back to Jerusalem and be converted to Christianity or I'm not coming back again. Oh, man. So, oh. And that gets... Let, let me give you a really evil story off the side of that. Haganah, the Jewish terrorist organisation, that what happened was 1918, Lawrence of Arabia, all that stuff... The Arabs have overthrown the Ottoman Empire and instead of being given the freedom they were promised, all of their lands are taken by the British and the French and put under yep. mandate. And the French territories, if you were not Christian, you weren't allowed to vote. In the British territories, you were likely to get slapped about the head if you said anything that, that they didn't like. So there was an Arab revolt. These people went, we were meant to have democracy, you know, making the world safe for democracy, Woodrow Wilson. And instead, you're controlling us. To put down the Arab revolt in 1936, the British army under Alexander Wavell sent in Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate will later be famous for uh, heading the Chindits in Burma, Myanmar, as it now is, against the Japanese. And as a boy, he was one of the people, you know, I, I, I loved military stuff so stonewall jackson and ord wingate were among my my heroes i was a deluded eight-year-old what can i say um but stonewall is still a great name um, ord, ord wingate unbeknownst to alexander wavell he was sent to and was a member of the plymouth brethren 
a puritanical exclusive brethren sect who believed that the Jews had to go back. He went to Haganah and with instructions from the British government trained them in terrorist activities. They were taught to attack Arab villagers, to murder people, to blow things up because this would put down the Arab revolt. That didn't go very well, did it? So history is not black and white. It's not two terminals. There are Thousand. none of these distinctions and the reasons that people find for hate need to be undermined with evidence. Right. And whether they're willing to consider the evidence or not is another matter. But, you know, that's that's what you and I have been doing for this you know, that's right. fairly no, that's substantial exactly right. period of our lives. That's right. And and you all here's here's where I can safely go with this and then and then maybe we should move toward wrapping up. Yeah. Um because it always ends up this way. There's a there's it's almost formulaic at this point in my life. Um as I have gotten better at this, as I have learned to do research faster and easier and better with better sourcing, better you know, under, you know, more analysis, more evidence-based research. I mean, the university experience has been seriously uplifting in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, that there's no question about it. My ability to research things prior to this was really haphazard. And, and now I am in much more confident territory. And it's not to say I can go get it you know, I'm, I'm at some professional grade. I'm just noting that that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. You know, when people tell you, go do your research, that's a very loaded statement, you know, if you... It doesn't mean go and look on, on, on Wikipedia and the internet. It means you know, I am horrified by the amount of people who adopt this word research. I've researched it on the internet. When I researched Blue Sky, there was no internet. I had to talk to the Montana Historical Society. I had to get the records from Camden, New Jersey. I had to get military records, what have you, and then go through them with people who understood them. That's Not take the opinion of somebody who's in QAnon about David Icke's transdimensional lizards, you know. My point. And, and where I'm going with this is that every time, over the years I've gotten better and better at this, but it's always been true, regardless of how bad I was. And it has to do with attitude and viewpoint and, and critical thinking. And it is that if you dive into something kind of with an open heart, let's say, or an open mind, you know, you, you, you clear, you have to take this step. You have to take the step of clearing your mind of your preconceptions. If you don't do that, your research is meaningless. And I will just say it straight up. It's useless. It becomes motivated reasoning. That's what it's, it's called. That's right. It's, and it's called confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. That's exactly right. You are only confirming what you think you already know. And that's not research. Research is going out and learning shit you don't know. And, it, and it's knowing that you don't know before you dive in. And I'm very passionate about this because it's a really vital lesson of my life. And, and it has been that every single time I've had a conflict, a difficulty, a, 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 a certainty that I was right and they were wrong. Every single time I've done the process, cleared my mind, gone and done research, read books, talked to people, you know, looked at interviews, whatever it was that, that the research consisted of, and come out the other side 
more tolerant, more understanding, more compassionate about the thing that I was so riled up about. And that is hap- I've proved it to myself uh, probably a hundred times now, you know, that I, every time I'm on some tear about something, when I go learn more about it and the details of it, I almost, consi- almost routinely, consistently find out the thing I was on a tear about was either totally wrong or it was based on half-truths. Mm-hmm. And... It's not to say that there are not things to be outraged about. Scientology is clearly something to be outraged about. The abuses of Scientology are clearly something to be, to be outraged about. So I'm not suggesting that you go read Dianetics and then you're going to chill out about, you know, Scientology's abuses. I'm not suggesting that's the path forward. But I am suggesting that, you know, I am justifiably outraged about Scientology because I do understand both sides of it. And I can maintain and know that I, and, and so I can, I can stand on a, on a, on a foundation of, of strength and say, I am justifiably upset about this. And here are my litany of reasons why. It's not just an opinion I hold. I have actual facts and evidence and reasons and testimonials and all kinds of things I can point to. So that's a very different position to be in it's an informed opinion. It's an informed viewpoint. And every time I have taken myself to an informed viewpoint about something, even uh, wh- whether I still disagree with the thing, I think where I'm trying to say is my animosity, my hatred, my yeah. feelings of ire and justice and something must be done about this, all of that goes away. And is replaced with a higher level understanding that gives me the ability to feel tolerant and compassionate and understanding towards these people. Mm-hmm. I don't hate Scientologists, and I know you don't either. We've said this no, three uh, times. Quite, right? quite the opposite. When Ken Urquhart um, accused me of being an anti, anti-Scientologist, I, I tried to point out that almost uniquely among human beings, I am a pro-Scientologist, that I gave away, you know, the middle years of my life uh, free of charge and at great personal cost 16 years of harassment and then 17 years of recovery um uh you know i was wiped out i was steamrolled by this organization and i was pretty much on my own for for years um there's lawrence wallersheim who was fighting his case um a noble and wonderful man and there's jerry armstrong who was desperately trying to defend himself but i I didn't have, I wasn't, you know, in a situation of trying to, to get um, a repayment for damage done to me. I didn't feel harmed or damaged. Um, I didn't feel brainwashed or anything like that. I walked away from Scientology. I felt fine because I'd been very lucky. Jerry had to, they came after him. I just stood up and said, this is wrong. This shouldn't be going on. So, and the only reason I did that was because I saw that Scientologists had been lied to and and were being enslaved and from the outside that was fairly apparent i make a differentiation between two emotional conditions one of them is anger or rage and so i'm hesitant about the word outrage because that it has that word rage in it yeah that's a an emotionally driven condition hatred loathing 
the opposition, the I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to beat you with the facts, whatever, um, which embattles people. Then there's indignation. Um, a few years ago, a, a very dear friend of mine um, told me that he didn't believe the Holocaust had happened. And my father was at the liberation of Belson. Mm -hmm. He was there. Um, the film of that, A Painful Reminder, it was decided not to show it yep. after it had been made because the German people were suffering badly enough with something like nine million of them dying after the war, seven million in the Russian zone, two million in the, the other Allied zone, um, because of mistreatment, but also because of m malnutrition and um, the very cold winter of 1947. My father was out there through all of that and begged to try and get food and blankets out there. You know, he was a good man. So somebody coming to me and saying this didn't happen and Fred Leuchter's ridiculous report is in some way true, that did rouse indignation in me. There was no doubt. I, I, I find that the idea that these hundreds of thousands of witnesses are not to be believed, that the testimony given at Nuremberg was somehow coerced, where there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that, when Rudolf Hoss, the first commandant of Auschwitz, is on the stand, and I've read the transcript and you can listen to the tape if you want to, he is asked if he had executed one and a quarter million Jews, which he hadn't. That was, in fact, an exaggeration. But he says in response, executed and exterminated. His deputy says the same thing, yep. you know, that, that we did this. There is nothing in history that has more evidence for it than the Shoah. And we also need to take in, into account the almost 200,000 Romani who were killed. Yep. That's right. No That's right. Yep. There were so but, many. All of the, the disabled, the, the mentally impaired. The, the T4 program, right. which happened before the war, and oh. to say that 45% of medical doctors in Germany joined the Nazi party, a much higher percentage than among lawyers uh, or, or any other professional group, um, which shows that, you know, you can persuade a man of anything as long as he's clever enough. But they really did believe, and current statistics will show that disability was not diminished by doing this, just in case anybody thinks that eugenics is a good idea. Right. But so it is right to be indignant about cruelties, what is happening currently in Israel, what Hamas are doing, and what Netanyahu are doing, I'm indignant about. This is a stupid way to, to proceed. This is not going to get us anywhere. I do understand, having talked with people involved there, how Palestinians and Israeli Arabs feel. You know, that if, for example, you're an Israeli Arab and you fall in love with an Israeli Jew, there's no way you can get married. You have to go to Cyprus because you can't be married. And I know this because I talked to a couple that this had happened to um, in, when I was in Paris, in fact. And... So, the, the, but the point is to move towards a solution rather than moving towards crushing an opponent. There are a small number of people, it is said about 2%, who are evil. They are psychopathic. We shouldn't forget that. We don't 
fully understand why it appears that there are um, there there is a deficit in the connection in the brain, the paralimbic connection between the limbus, the old brain, and the prefrontal cortex. That averages out at about seven percent less than is normal, and it means that they are more impulsive, and they they think that everybody's out for themselves, mm. uh, which I'm afraid has become a philosophy that spread through our culture. It's found in Russia, it's found in China, it's found throughout the West, this idea that we're just here to grab as much as we can for ourselves. At the other end of the scale, there are about 2% of people who are empaths and who feel that they'd like everyone to get along. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very easily weaponized by sociopaths and psychopaths right. so that when you look to Scientology, you see so many really wonderful people. That's right. You know? um, I, would I thought it was the vehicle for change. I yeah. thought it was the way we were going to save the world. And yeah. when you look at, you know, the conflict, the the outrage, the the, the continuing warfare, and and other problems in this world, and the the haphazard, chaotic ways that we go about dealing with them, mm. you, it's not a hard sell to tell a young person, hey, this needs to change. And we can do something about it, you yeah. know. And, and thusly, Greta Thunberg, who has made more change in the world than, than I have, much more. Right. And bless her, you know, watching her address to the United Nations, where he said, "She's saying, look, you're just a load of complacent bastards. You're you not doing anything except getting yourselves reelected. You know, right. so let's let's do something." Um, right. That, it's refreshing. That we, you know, we're still having to argue with people as to whether global warming is happening. Um, we're still having to argue with people as to whether dumping mercury in the sea is doing any damage, you know. Well, well we still, okay. Even after, even after 1955 and polio, we still have to argue with people about vaccines. Not, 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 well, you know, not, not just this vaccine, but any vaccine, just vaccines. They're just all bad. You know, and curiously, when you go back in history in the 19th century, there was a huge anti-vax movement which was led by two groups of people in society, churchmen and doctors. They were the anti-vaxxers. And you I, know, eventually the evidence became overwhelming. I, I think those classes are still in play. <laughs> well, and, you we, know? But, That's where I we, see it coming from. I mean, for the most part, I have dear friends who are neither of those things who are anti-vax. So I'm not making, I'm not saying it's only this and that, but yeah. I certainly see a lot of that. Yeah, people buy into a conviction about the world and become impervious to evidence. Right. And there's a lot to be said about how to, to weigh evidence and how to judge evidence. When I left Scientology, I realised, you know, Adele Davis is the easiest example. Let's eat right to keep fit. Yes. Now, she was finally in court, and this is not something we were told, shown to be a fraud. That somebody really? died as a consequence of following her instruction. And really? it came out in court that when you look in the back of her books at all the research papers, she just hired a team of people to find anything that had been published on the subject and add it to the bibliography. She didn't use any of this to support her work. She was an absolute fraud. And so I came away from Scientology, all this kind of mega vitamins. Yeah, know, me too. Disgusting quantities yeah. of vitamins. And I thought, well, okay. What about if I find a professor of nutrition in a mainstream university 
and I found this guy who's called Bender and uh, he's a character in Futurama as well um, and he'd written a basic book about nutrition and he explains various things he said if a, a vitamin is water soluble and you take too much of it then you'll pee it out and if you stop taking it you'll keep peeing it out so you'll get the vitamin deficiency syndrome vitamin c is really principal in this you need 180 milligrams a day it depends everybody's different let's accept this but somewhere around that should do it for you uh I, an exoentologist a famous exoentologist stayed in my house a few years ago and told me he was taking 10 grams a day of vitamin right. c and yep. i said so your stomach hurts right <laughs> because it will be burning the mucus lining of your stomach because it's a strong acid yep and you smell bad <laughs> took me six months he'd only stayed for two nights it took me six months to get rid of the smell of the man because wow. he's taken on board this doctrine and uh decided that that this is the way the truth and the life it's very easy to do that so the first thing is find out who the standard authority is meant to be and read them and right. if you want to get into climate change or something like that you know the famous hockey stick effect that caused such a, a scandal well there was nothing in it it was just to do with dendrochronology being assessed alongside more recent and more accurate methods and saying this is what we reckon it was a piece of very good science in fact but it caused jubilation among skeptics uh, cynics one should probably say because they thought that it proves something the leaked emails uh, from east the east anglian university all of this you keep going you keep taking evidence in and you fit it into context people often talk to me about how, how i would know that something's true or not i today had an email from a guy now he started pestering me and a number of other people uh, a little while back wanting to know whether on May the 28th, 1972, Ron Hubbard was in Tangier. And uh, according to John Atax, a piece of blue sky, he was. And he'd gone and insulted Janice Gillam Grady. Um, apparently what he's seeking to prove is that Ron swapped bodies at this point. Ah, uh, that whole thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, and got I, it. I wrote... I foolishly responded and i said well you know the reference notes you've given from a piece of blue sky are not actually to this event um two reference notes have been in fact three have been squashed together here and this is what it actually is and he wrote back and he sent me a copy of the chapter in blue sky and said look i can see it now maybe you can see it too for 30 years you've been lying or what have you and i'm kind of going what you're showing me is a pirate edition of my book that I have never authorised. I know it's a pirate because it's got a picture of Hubbard on the page. There are no illustrations in any version of Blue Sky other than Susan Meister's terrible letter to her father before she was murdered aboard the ship. Um, so what he's got is somebody who's typed it up, got the references in the wrong place, and now he's telling me that I'm a waste of space. That's it's, anger. That's rage. That's not yeah, consideration yeah. of evidence. Um, right. 
And I have suggested, I, I did think about being impolite in response to him, but decided, because he is really quite nasty. He, he, I'd just like to point out, if he is watching, that in Scientology terms, what he did is called covert hostility. He approached me in a friendly way with an agenda to, to express his resentment towards me. And I'd like to say that that is his social tone, and I did do the course for this, the Class Zero course. That's his social tone. But his chronic tone is blame, which is below death. So, you know, the, people need to sort things out in terms of their own metaphors of the world. And in Scientology terms, that's who he, who, who he is. Of course, so was Ron Hubbard. Right. A 1.1, a covertly hostile human being who loathed and detested most of humanity, including his own children. Yeah, he his was, own wife. He was a real misanthrope, that guy. I mean, it was yeah. it was he was such a complicated character because he he just he was so bipolar, though. I mean, he just bounced back and forth because I believe people when they tell me that he had, you know, great conversations and he was a life of the party and he could really care about people and pull folders of sick staff on the ship and demand they be gone through and sort them out. I mean, it's not. It's not like there weren't flashes of caring and care and compassion coming out of the guy either. But it was... I'm so sorry, my belief is that that was mystical manipulation. Well, I'm not saying that it was all necessarily heartfelt. We can't know. But what I, I will... I, I think we can know. I, I, think that if we, I think if we add the evidence together, and as I say, I am a court-appointed expert witness, which <laughs> means that my opinion... No, this is legally true. My I, opinion I, on the subject of Scientology and Hubbard can be accepted as evidence in court. And I'm saying that, that looking at all of the instances of compassion, they're all for show. They're all for show. When you look at what he actually did and what he knew, look at the conversation he had with Charlie Nairn in 1968, where Nairn said it's a scam. And he said, yeah. And, and I, Nairn I, says I, to him, I, well, I, it, must, it must be awfully bad for you to, to have to conceal that. And being a narcissist, he, of course, wept for himself at that point. And so Nairn said to him, why do you do it? And he said, well, it's great to be able to give my wife, tell my wife you've got $10,000 in the bank today. That's uh, half a million dollars a day now or something. But the real reason I do it is to reel in the clever ones. Oh, he was persistently I, malignant. That, I, 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 I hear you. I definitely hear you. You're not, you're not speaking to an unfriendly audience with me on this, but I have to push back because I have to ask the question about that particular individual saying those things about Hubbard from that interview. The, it, 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 I, I do not understand why it is that at that point in time, L. Ron Hubbard would open up so honestly to somebody who was a goddamn reporter. Well, that makes uh, no sense it, to me. L. Ron Hubbard was like a drug addict. L. Ron Hubbard. Not according. Why to would he, in one place, claim to be a war hero publicly when he had already said that he beat up people on July the twenty-fifth, and had already, in To Look magazine, said I had no war wounds, and. Why did he, on that 23rd September 1950 lecture, tell the truth about himself? Well, because phenobarbital, and we know he tried to get a prescription for it in 65, we know he admitted to being an addict. I made myself a guinea pig on one of these experiments, he says in the lecture, and it's a hard thing to get off phenobarbital. We know from his medical records he took phenobarbital. Well, phenobarbital 
is a sister of sodium amytal and sodium pentothal, the truth drugs. And when people take them, they are often prone to be truthful. In the recorded conversation that he gives immediately after that, he says, I had no second wife. I had a first wife, Polly, and a third wife, Mary Sue. There are no Swiss, there is one Swiss bank account. Do you believe in reincarnation? Pause. But your followers believe in reincarnation? Oh yes. He was deceitful. He put forward a completely false image of himself. Did he know he was doing it? The 1938, August 1938 Skipper letter. My only goal is to smash my name into history. I do not believe in immortality beyond the painted canvas, the barred note, or hard grabite, that's what it says. I think he meant granite. He consistently, you know, when he's told about Quentin, his own son's death, yeah. he says, this is another fine mess you've got me into. This Absolutely. is not a compassionate man. This I, is I, a man I, who is tricking everybody around him all the time. I hear you on that. And 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 and, and I'm indignant I, about it, Chris. Well, I get it. I mean, I get it. The guy he was screwed he was, up the yeah. lives of tens of thousands I, of people. I I don't disagree with any of that. But Hitler was a fabulous dancer. He could he could well, do a whole apartment, great painter, two coats one afternoon. Well, the, let's not forget Himmler was a family man. You know, you know the, Himmler was the Himmler was a weaponized empath. That's another conversation. Hubbard was a malignant narcissist, as you say, he was bipolar. But having interviewed so many people who worked with him, Otto Rose, John McMaster, Ira Chaleff, yeah. uh, Hannah Whitfield, uh, on and on and on. The, the, those, whenever I hear one of those, it's like Hannah tried to persuade us at um, <coughs> Toronto about his super perception that he'd seen, you know, from 200 yards away, he'd seen somebody painting the side of the, the ship and said there were hairs coming off the brush. Well, as an artist, and knowing the quality of brushes that he used, <laughs> there are always hairs coming off the brush. It didn't require supernatural powers to see that. He put on a show for people. Right. To, so people would... Yeah, it, Peter Warren told a story the first time I, I met Peter Warren, who died still loving Hubbard. He said the day he joined the ship, um, he did something that somebody didn't like. So they put him over the side on a plank with two ropes attached and told him to paint the side of the ship. And he doubtless got hairs from the brush on the side of the ship. Now I'm sat there going, no safety harness? That's just me. No, no safety harness. And he said, and then Hubbard came out. It's the night. I'm over the side of the ship painting. You know, no safety harness. And Hubbard calls out, put some lights on for that man. Now there's compassion for you. No. Chain lockers, overboarding, compassion. No, it's all for uh, show. Uh, okay, fair enough. I, I get it. <laughs> and uh, there you go. And I hope your humility and compassion will allow you to see <laughs> that I'm totally right. <laughs> I definitely see that. As we have agreed... We have to put, we have to accept our passion, we have to accept our subject, subjectivity, but there must be hard evidence. Yeah. And my point of view, yeah, the general consensus which, which most novelists and TV dramatists have is that, that um, we can resolve 
evil in people. But then we come across cases like Ted Bundy. Right. Charles Manson. Richard Ramirez. Yeah. David Berkowitz. Yeah. Um, and on and on and on. Yeah. Jack the Ripper. And there are people, you know, hit, if we talked about Hitler, then, yeah, he was a vegetarian. You know, so when the Krishnas come along and talk about the aggression that comes from eating meat, you tell them that. He was, as far as I know, the first man to loudly suggest that smoking tobacco caused lung cancer. He was the first man to initiate animal rights legislation. But I don't see any of that as compassionate. I believe that Hitler, just as Hubbard, was utterly selfish, was utterly convinced of his own rightness and was willing to destroy anyone who got in his path. That you then see accounts of Hitler where people are talking about this wonderful feeling they had when in his presence. You know, how yeah. all of their troubles went away. You yeah. see pictures of him with uh, the Mitford sister, I can't remember, the one who married Mosley, sitting stroking her hair, you know. So yeah. how much of that is contrived and is there true evil in the world? Are there people, you know, like Mao Zedong, who are totally selfish, who care nothing for other people? Well, the evidence is there are. Mm. Um, I think it was Kent Keel in, in writing The Psychopath Whisperer, who's done more work on it than anybody else, who, who said that he, one of the people he interviewed was, he was in jail because he'd killed somebody in a bar fight. And the guy said to him, if he'd looked at you the way he looked at me, you'd have killed him too. And there are people who actually feel that way. One of the problems that we have as empaths, and yes, I test as 100% a super empath, which to me is a disorder, because it means that I have a knee-jerk reaction to try and help people. And I get in a lot of trouble. I've had advantage taken of me at every turn as a consequence. Jesus. I, I, yes, good point. Yeah. So it means that I, I do understand, I'm not sure about Myers-Briggs, but the idea that there are 16 personality types and other people don't feel the way I feel, and they may well be conning me. They may well be, you know, where I'm thinking am i doing enough am i you know am i being helpful enough right am i being polite enough am i going to leave this conversation in a friendly way can i resolve exactly what you said when we were talking at the beginning yeah um how can i settle this down so that people will be friendly and sometimes i'm dealing with a malignant narcissist and they're going yeah right that's right and that's so, danger it's and hubbard is one of the worst it, you're not, you know, you're not wrong. And, and this is why I love conversations. I, exactly. It, no, really, it really is. And sometimes I guess, um, I don't know what to say, you know, you're just going to have to go through some emotion um, because this, yeah. is, this is not, you know, this is not something we're just, told, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not something I'm uninvested in. It's an interesting proposition to think of, to think of empathy at the level, I suppose, that you and I experience it as a disorder, that is such an interesting idea. Um, because I think about people, here's how I, here's my best guess <laughs> about, about serial killers, about that kind of person, that, that class of person, that unempathetic 
willing to kill you because they look, you know, if somebody looks at you funny kind of way. Mm-hmm. I consider it like a, some kind of a, of a mutation, like, like an X-Men type of thing. Like it's like, it's not a superpower. It's like a super negativity, but it's a, mm-hmm. but it's a, but it's a thing, you know, and certain people just get, get born with this. I don't, but we don't yet know. I mean, is it what the connections are, but somehow there's some connection that just isn't being made. And yet, for us, the connections are too strong. Maybe. We, We're opposite. People talk about mirror neurons. I, I, I'm still yeah. not satisfied that that's been proven yeah. all these decades later. Yeah. But yeah. nonetheless, the idea is that if I see somebody suffering, then I have compassion, which means to feel together, compassio. Yep. I feel what they feel. Um, a differentiation is recently being made. Uh, Paul Bloom at Yale published a book, um, which I have here, which is called Against Empathy. And in it, he points out that empathy is a knee-jerk reaction. And he then, uh, his subtitle is The Case for Rational Compassion. And I, I don't think you really need to read the book, because frankly, it doesn't say much more than that. But he gives a lot of examples that support the idea, and I seek now to uh, curb my empathy, to um, to look at uh, you know what I'm actually dealing with more precisely, and to be able to have indifference, to embrace indifference, to be able to say, I was talking with uh, did a thing with Jessica Turville. Yeah, um, last that. week I saw that actually. Yeah, and and. She is so smart, yeah, but she but she has this thing where she's saying, you know, well, what's the other person trying to get out of the transaction you're having? And I think there's this, there is a, an enormous problem. Um, there's a woman called Jane McGregor, who's a professor at Nottingham University, and she basically puts forward the view, what she calls the sociopath, empath, apath triangle. Yep. or seat. Um, and an apath is one of the 60% of people who... Oh, that, is that how they have the percentages broken down? 60%? Yeah, it's the same as Milgram. It's Schopenhauer said the same. Eric Fromm said the same. They all hit around 60% of people. And I think I go with Fromm that 60% of people don't develop a self. They're always looking to somebody else to define who they are. So, you mm-hmm. know, how they dress, how they speak... And our whole society is geared towards this benign form of narcissism. But it's also geared towards uh, tribalism. We talked about this the last time we talked. We did. We did. That's right. Because this has to do with fashion and trends and fads and, you know, always following the leader and all that kind of stuff. Why do we act that way? Well, clearly, because a majority of us are are set up to be that way. And the the problem is that... the tendency among human beings will be authoritarian. It will be, well, I'll do what you guys want to do. Mm-hmm. It will be when some bully, and I am going to name Donald Trump again, comes along and blusters at people, they'll go, oh, he must know better than we do. Right. And it doesn't matter how much you prove that the man has no education whatsoever and very few skills and has basically worked with the mafia to make money. Exactly. It doesn't matter. People are, they're authoritarian in their beliefs, so they need a leader. Right. To grow out of that as individuals, we have to put empathy aside as well. 
because otherwise we become like Himmler. We become people who, because of our empathy, are willing to found the SS, run the Gestapo and the, the death camps. And like so many people in Scientology, that some of the most empathetic people I've met, uh, talking with Karen de la Carrier, Mike Rinder, Ron Hopkins years ago, Ira Chaleff, um, even Otto Rose, who had a pretty nasty reputation, much of it manufactured. Otto said to me many years ago that the one thing that Scientology lacks is compassion. That's the missing ingredient because it's about affinity or closeness. It's not about actually caring. And it elevates people in their narcissism. It makes them ever more selfish, ever more first dynamic comes first, as a friend of mine used to put it to me. Yeah. And it's finding that balance because otherwise you get Mode, Abe, Trump, Scott Morrison, Netanyahu, all of these uh, Duterte, the worst of them all, yeah. um, who said, you know, my only crime is the extrajudicial killings, i.e. the only crime I've committed is multiple murders. I haven't taken any old old ladies' savings. I've just got a list of people who admitted that they took drugs at some point and have sent out death squads to kill them, telling them they'd be imprisoned if I caught them later, having smoked a joint sometime. Right. Tens of thousands of murders. These people have been put in charge. Democ Putin, Xi. We have to crack that specific problem. And that means recognising predation, recognising that there are predatory people for whatever reason. Yeah. And that the only treatment that will ever help them is, one, take them out of any place where they can harm people, and two, treat them with tremendous compassion. Not to put them in prison and beat them up and let them be raped. Exactly. But the only, the only change we've ever seen in the psychopathic disorder is the Montaka study, uh, which is the only one I know of that's big enough to suggest you can actually change, particularly teenagers, which is who it's aimed at, you can change their behaviour. You can turn them away from a destructive life. Um, and something can be done. And that's part and parcel of what you've been doing all of these years, headed towards that thing where people think and feel for themselves yeah. rather than adopting, you know, what they're meant to think and feel. So anyway, as you say, we about an hour ago, we were going to wind up. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, one of the other things we really ought to talk about is how to get your kids out or how to oh, make yeah. sure your kids have to talk with you because... I mean, talking with Mike the last time I talked with him, I love that guy, you know, <laughs> talking about empaths, you know, and yet he ran harassment for however many years, you know. Well, he's Just... probably the case study for you in, the, in how, you know, a, a proof positive case study of how an empath can be corrupted. Yeah. Because I, I was the same way. I, I, forward drive, man, for 20 years, I, oh. was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was my own rocket fuel. You yeah. know, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I had nine years in Scientology. I never doubted Scientology or Hubbard. I doubted the organization deeply. And I spent two years away from it because I found it, you know, despicable in its behavior. Yeah. But I, I really believed. And then one day you look at it and you go, oh, the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> What was I thinking? I, you know, the the thing that came through from your email, which, which 
I think is important is Hubbard wasn't as clever as we are. We had to use our intelligence to buttress his inanity. When you look at that bullshit, you know, all that stuff in the 50s about little gold discs in front of your eyes. and Oh, my the, God. The guy was completely cracked. He was. He, he wasn't on drugs. Was. Come on. That's right. <laughs> And I and I posted the day this hit me, the day that I think it was the same day I posted like it's finally happened. It's fine. It took eight and a half years, but it finally happened. I opened up a Scientology book and it was the gibberish it's always been. You know, and there you go. That's boohoo and the weeper. That's right. And it's actual. And and to, and to say that that is progress is amazing, but true because it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's how it went. You know, I, I, I really, really was jubilant when, you know, you were exactly right to send me the email. It was like, yes, you know, my compadre has, has I, reached the end of the bridge, you know. Exactly. It was well, all bullshit. <laughs> I have cognition. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I hope to have many more of those. And, um, and I, you know, it is, it, it, it's an interesting take. Just to return to this as we wrap up here. It was such an interesting take to look at, you know, maybe the idea or label or whatever, you know, extreme empathy. I mean, maybe there's something a little wrong with that, too. I will say this. It is certainly exhausting. It, and I have had to pull back because as I have gotten more popular or whatever, I get more communication coming at me. And I'm sure you've experienced this, where you just get to the point where you're like, I can't, I, 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 no, I can't deal with any more. And I'm not there yet, but I can see it coming. And I'm like, oh, shit, I get why, you know, you have to either up, up the game or step out of the game, because there's a certain point where you can't care, you care too much. I'd find myself in a two-hour conversation with a schizophrenic, you know, who was being followed by Ron, or... Right. and or an alcoholic or, or, or yeah. just it, it all it all came undone there's a point in the movie of jesus christ superstar uh, which i saw as a teenager and yeah. it was lovely where jesus is all the lepers are kind of coming around to be cured and he says there are too many of you there's not enough of me right and when you look at that equation is it any wonder that the predators rule the world Whereas those of us who are willing to sacrifice ourselves get sacrificed. That's right. That, and that is right. That's, you know, my work in the last seven or eight years has all been focused on that. And Scientology is just the metaphor that I use. I haven't done any serious study of Scientology since January 96. Right. I don't, don't look at the bunker. I, I just pronounce, you know, I, I say things because it's just more of the same. That's right. Round and round. And it's then looking at how it's in our whole society, this crazy set of authoritarian beliefs. And the thing that did come up in our last conversation was about the Indus Valley civilization, 700 years of peace in a human civilization. They're now saying that there was a Ukraine civilization. Similarly, yeah. we inherited the Sumerian Babylonian god, president or king, hoi polloi, that pyramid of power. But there were societies 
that were successful, that had no temples, had no palaces, and seemed to have made decisions, you know, as an anarcho-syndicalist commune or a Soviet or whatever. Right. And I profoundly believe that if we're going to, if there's going to be something for our grandchildren, that we need to address that by getting, you know, empathy overload dealt with. Yeah. So so that, you know, and, and teaching people that, you know, and, and it's certainly the consequence in my life, and I think probably in yours, I'm really happy. Mm -hmm. I'm a really happy person. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. I certainly wasn't in Scientology. But having resolved all of these, couldn't care less about whether there's a God or an afterlife or any of that stuff. I'm just really happy. Yeah. And it allows me to relate to the world and to say that being nice, it, it, when... Um, the head of the Invest UK defected, she said that she had agents who'd come back to her and say, I can't keep doing this. He's too nice. Greg Ryerson, who was the man who actually broke me and finished me off in the courts, said to somebody who informed on me later and then came back and told me um, that Ryerson has said, you know, John's not an SP. And in, in my next lifetime, I'm going to make it my mission to save him. <laughs> So, you know, what are you going to yeah, do? What are you going to do, man? And I think, yeah. I think this has been a really great conversation. I think the other 21, I think it is, we've had have also been very interesting. But I think we've touched some things that, that might be helpful to people here, which is the main thing, isn't it? That's right. It's always been the thing for me. And I I think we have always done that. And I think that we are upping our game. And I and I I, I guess that it is experience and education and, and, and the journey, you know, that's making I mean, it better. I, I I was in Copenhagen in 2014 and Steve Kinane flew over from Australia just to meet with me a second time and interview me. Wow. I love that guy. He oh, is wonderful. Yeah. And he sat down and he interviewed me. That it, It's on ABC Radio. It, it was, I haven't looked recently, but I think it's on their channel. And it was the best interview I'd ever had because he knew what he was talking about. He knew what questions to ask. And the same thing in our conversations together, we share so much ground in terms not just of Scientology but of our intentions yeah. and of our education, our information about this whole business, that it's inevitable that we will stimulate thinking in each other. And, you know, it's not that pedestrian, you know, sitting down doing um, the thing I did in uh, Montreal with the LA producer who said, uh, so uh, who was Ron Hubbard? Right. <laughs> Oh boy, here we go. Uh, exactly. So great. Well, okay. thank you, John. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. And uh, and thanks for doing this with me. And um, and yeah, we'll we'll get it out there. And uh, let me put in a standard end of show plug here. Anybody out there, if you're enjoying our conversations and you know you're getting something out of it, then consider contributing to both of our causes because we're both out here being content creators to try to help you guys help ourselves get, you know, make the world a better place. And if you want to contribute to that cause, then check us out. All right. With that, and contrary to that, popular opinion, we're not actually funded by any of the 17 American intelligence agencies. Bingo. Or QAnon or <laughs> anyone at all. So this 
is all public service broadcasting. And uh, check out our, you know, Chris's book, my books, um, my channel, his channel, uh, and dig through the stuff there. We, I mean, I don't know how many videos you've got. I've got over 300 now. It's Isn't mad. It amazing. Yeah. It just goes. You just get going and it just goes. It is awesome. Yeah. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye.